There's something transformative in the birth of a child. Life, having begun months prior, is now officially and formally introduced to the world. To witness a birth firsthand instills a sense of awe in you. And there's a hope in birth, too. It's the start of something fresh. It's nothing short of astounding. Just a couple of nights ago, a friend told me a story about a young lady she knows who had never witnessed the birth of a child before. But this young lady recently had opportunity to be present when her best friend gave birth. To say that she was changed by seeing a newborn take his first breath would be a pretty incredible understatement. Even in sharing pictures of her friend's baby, she was unable to keep from crying, overcome by tears of the miracle and the hope of a new child. When we talk about the birth of Jesus, this awe is certainly present, and we add a sense of sentimentality to it. We have the the cute baby cooing in a manger, surrounded by animals, maybe some unusual smells. Maybe you consider how young Mary was or what she was thinking. You might wonder if she recalled yet again the words of the angel nine months prior. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Or maybe you can imagine the hope that spread from the first recorded visitors that we have, those lowly shepherds, as they related what they were told by angels and as those who heard what they said responded in wonder. This is the Savior Christ the Lord, this baby is the long-awaited hope of Israel and of the world. I would expect that every believer here knows in their mind that there is hope in the birth of Christ, but our hope extends far beyond the legitimate new human life hope. But how? This evening, 2,000 years after the events recorded in Luke 2, we're going to look briefly at four reasons that you can find hope in the birth of Christ, out of Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. So in the birth of Christ, the first point tonight is, the Father has intervened for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for God has done. There's so much hope in these words. God has done. The very source and initiator of the incarnation and the saving work of Christ is God himself. This work was not delegated to an angel or to one of the priests of Israel. No, we read here that God has done this. The author of life, the creator, the one we now call Father, this work that we're going to talk about was initiated by God for you. And don't uh, miss the weightiness of the tense here. It says God has done what the world has waited for since Genesis 3, what Israel anticipated from the promises to Abraham, this wait, this delay for a Messiah, a Savior. Paul clearly states now that this messianic work in verse 3 is a done work. As he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome, this work hasn't just begun. It's not potential. It's not yet to be completed at some future date. This work is done. God has done. But what exactly is it that God has done? Romans 8.3 again. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So what is it that the law can't do? 
we don't see any inabilities in the law itself due to shortcomings in it. Just a few verses earlier, Paul removed any suggestion that the law might have some sort of defect. Romans 7.12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Likewise, David in Psalm 19 praises the law of God as perfect. Rather, the inability of the law is due to the weakness of our sin-corrupted flesh. Sin is the culprit. Paul addresses this in chapter 7, verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law. There are two important but absolutely necessary things that the law, weakened by sinful flesh, is unable to accomplish. First, the law cannot bring one into right standing with God. Paul devoted the first portion of his letter to the Romans to this very topic. No one is righteous. No one can achieve righteousness through obedience to the law. Every one of us is utterly hopeless in meeting the just requirements of a holy God. In Romans 3.20, we see Paul saying that no human being will be justified in God's sight. The law, weakened by flesh, cannot provide right standing with God. A second thing that the law can't do, it can't bring holiness. This is all of Romans chapter 7 where Paul exposes his own internal conflict between desire and action. He summarizes this pretty well in chapter 7, verse 19, where he says, For I do do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. So we see that God, in his action, has overcome inabilities in the law by sending his own son. This is the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. This is the first hope. Our inabilities in our flesh and through the law have been addressed and overcome by God the Father in the birth of Christ. A second reason we can find hope in the birth of Christ is that Jesus understands your weakness. Romans 8.3 again. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the fully human existence of Jesus, we have hope. Jesus came, unlike us, in that he had no earthly father and therefore no sin nature, but exactly like us in flesh and bones, in temptation and emotions, in weariness and sorrow. Jesus understands your weakness. He's not distant. He's not unapproachable. He's not unsympathetic as a savior. We can see this in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace for mercy and grace because Jesus came in the likeness of our sinful flesh. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, the Son of God, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands your weakness and you can with confidence go to him for help in the face of your temptation and trials. You can go to him when all of your hopes and your dreams and plans crumble. You can go to him when you fall 
and you sin yet again. You can approach him about the brokenness in your family. He understands the death of loved ones. Having been made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he is sympathetic to you in these things. We can find hope in the birth of Christ because the Father intervened for you, because Jesus understands your weakness. And the third reason that we can find hope in the birth of Christ is that Jesus has obtained righteousness for you. The end of Romans chapter 8, verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or as a sacrifice for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. When a person is condemned, his right to rule or any authority that he has is removed. His authority is eliminated. God in the flesh and bones body of Christ on the cross condemned sin, pouring out his wrath on Jesus. That means that sin no longer has rights or rule or authority over you. This is the work that sits in the no condemnation claim that Paul makes in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, with his birth, begins the necessary life of perfect law-keeping on your behalf so that on the cross, all of God's fury and condemnation against your sin and mine could ultimately be absorbed by Jesus. So we can find hope in the birth of Jesus because the Father intervened for you. Jesus understands your weakness. Jesus has obtained righteousness for you And finally, a fourth reason that we can find hope in the birth of Jesus, the Spirit strengthens you for holiness. Again, Romans 8.1, I want to make sure that we hit this well. Paul makes clear that in Christ we're not under condemnation. We are no longer under God's judgment. As sweeping as this claim is and as sufficient as it is for strength and hope in our daily life, I actually find myself sometimes incorrectly seeing this as primarily a future truth. God's going to judge eventually, and I'm okay because Christ has taken my punishment for that judgment. That is true. Maybe you do this sometimes too. That no condemnation claim, though, has impact for us today, though, too. It comes, in fact, directly on the heels of Paul in Romans chapter 7, just a few verses before this, explaining his frustrations Again, I do not want, in verse 19, I do not want what I do not want, I do. And the very thing that I hate, I find myself doing. The evil, in verse 15, the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Paul's spirit-awakened, new life desire to serve the law of God is present, but his flesh continues to betray him. He has the desire, but too often, insufficient ability because of sin. I think we can relate to this. We understand this. There are so many results in us from this inexperience or from this experience of inability. We see things like unending guilt, debilitating shame, feelings of defeat or unworthiness as we think about approaching God. Again, Father, I messed up. I knew it was sin, but I did it anyway. I'm not worthy to come before you. And then the accuser enters, right? You say you love God, but look at what you did. He can't forgive that. 
How many, do you, how many times do you think God's going to forgive you for that? Obviously, you really don't love God. How about you call yourself an adopted child of God? You surely wouldn't have done that if you truly are one of his. Then Paul comes in and he strikes this down at its root. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is justification language, right? This is rooted in the declaration of justified based on the death and resurrection of Christ in chapters 5 and 6 of Romans, if you go back and look at that. As people who are in Christ, the wrath of God against sin was dealt with in one act of righteousness that leads to justification in life. That's in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So the following statements from Paul that we're going to look at are in the context of having already dealt with the standing before the Father of those who are in Christ. We are declared righteous on account of Christ's completed work. When God looks on those who are in Christ, he sees the full and complete righteousness of a perfect law-keeping life and the righteousness of Christ. But having stated his own continued struggles with sin, Paul also addresses actual righteousness in us. Not only accounted, not only declared, but present. In fact, these verses, he provides the in us righteousness as part of the purpose of Christ's coming. Look at Romans 8, 4. I'll start in 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that, for the purpose that, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is, this is amazing. Paul is stating here that one of the purposes of God sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh is so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled not only for us, not only accounted to us, but actually in us. This is what we call sanctification. Christ's righteousness being applied in us, ultimately in increased obedience to the law. And there is hope in this through the work of the Spirit in our lives. Look at the end of verse 4. <clears throat> this is for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is Christ's desire for us, for his church. And Paul clarifies this yet again in Ephesians chapter 5, the context he's, he's talking about husbands and wives, but the ground of his statements is how Christ's, Christ interacts with the church. Romans, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and here we go, so that he might present, for the purpose that, he might present to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. It's in our sin-corrupted flesh that we continue to struggle with the law. We desire to follow it because it reflects God's holiness and perfection. And Christ's goal and the Spirit's work in us is for that holiness to be present. And the benefits of this are more than we can, we can even address tonight. A few verses after the ones we're looking at right now, Paul points out that this in-the-spirit life results in life, peace, and ultimately full redemption and restoration of our bodies. So Christian, 
do not be discouraged as you struggle to follow Christ. You can find hope in knowing that the one purpose, that one purpose of the incarnation is so that the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in you through the Spirit's work. So everything we've seen so far tonight is for those who are in Christ. To be in Christ describes a union with Christ that is rooted in faith and trust in Christ's work as our only right standing before the Father. If you are not in Christ, if you're not trusting Christ alone for your right standing before this holy God, if you don't find yourself struggling at all with sin, then none of this hope we've talked about is yours. But I would love for you to be able to rest in this hope. When you see a nativity scene and the manger with a baby in it, know that Jesus did not come for righteous people. He came for sinners. And if you turn to him in faith, in recognition of your sinfulness and your need for a savior, this hope can be yours. Any of the elders would love to talk to you tonight afterwards about this. And brothers and sisters, fellow believers, you who are in Christ, you can find hope this evening as you contemplate the birth of Jesus. You can find hope when you consider that in the birth of Christ, the Father intervened for you. Jesus understands your weakness. Jesus has obtained righteousness for you. And finally, the Spirit strengthens you for holiness. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in your intervention on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus, born in the likeness of sinful flesh, is a sympathetic and a with us Savior. Thank you for the righteousness we have obtained through his work on our behalf. And thank you for the Spirit's work in us, conforming us into Christ's image. Would you give us joy tonight and rest as we consider these hopes? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.